on today's episode, Sleep Science for Recovery with the lovely Dr. Amy Bender. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. Let's dive in. This is, um, it's probably taking it from a bit of a different angle that served its original purpose when I put it on the Run Smarter podcast. But this is a crucial episode that I want you guys to listen to because not only from what we learned last episode, not only is sleep and cortisol amplifying pain, if you decrease your sleep, if you increase your cortisol, increase your stress, it actually amplifies pain signals. If you have a good night's sleep and you start getting a good night's sleep and it reduces pain levels, that allows you to start doing more and start tolerating more loads and start doing I guess, more rehab exercises that, you, that you're able to tolerate. And so that obviously will lead to better outcomes, better recovery. So this is really, really important. So we interviewed Dr. Amy Bender. I won't give too much away now. Let's dive straight into the recap from the Run Smarter podcast. We had Dr. Amy Bender. She is a sleep scientist. She has on her Twitter, she is a scientist on a mission to promote sleep for well-being and better performance. She does talk about the work that she has done in the past and the work she's doing now at the start of the interview. In this episode, we talk about the different stages of sleep and what you need to know as a runner. What are some signs of poor sleep habits? We learn about the quality of sleep and the quantity of sleep along with the timing of your sleep patterns. What it means if you're falling asleep really quickly. Uh, what are some common sleep disorders? And we answer a lot of your social media questions. I forgot to thank you guys on the actual recording. So I'll say it now. Thank you for submitting your questions. Uh, we did get through all of them. We were pressed for time a little bit at the end. Um, Amy did have her kids due home at a certain period of time. So it might seem a little bit rushed towards the end. Uh, I think it was about two minutes after we finished recording that they burst in the, the door and... Um, made a charge towards her. It was quite cute. And we did manage to get the interview uh, done and dusted just in time. Amy's very passionate about the science of sleep for athletes. And she's very well versed in the current research and is still active in her research herself. So she's the perfect guest to have on to talk about these sort of things. And I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, here is Dr. Amy Bender. Amy, thanks again for the time to come on to the podcast. I think we might want to start with just a brief glimpse into your career to date and how it's developed to um, your current position and the, the roles you're working on at the moment. So um, would you like to share a bit of that? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I, well, I'm an athlete myself, so I played three sports in high school. I played college basketball. Um, and then after that, I 
got a taste of some mountaineering and um, just been kind of an athlete all my life. And so that was definitely one of my passions. But then I kind of jumped into the sleep career. My aunt was a sleep tech. And so she was a sleep technician in Portland, Oregon, and um, had me come out to her lab and kind of see what she did. And so she hooked up a patient with a bunch of electrodes, and then we were able to look at the screen to see how these physiological signals kind of translated to what we were seeing on the screen. So I was definitely fascinated by that. And as soon as I got home, I pretty much called every sleep lab in my area to see if I could kind of volunteer. Ended up volunteering um, a few nights per week, uh, well, maybe one, one night per week, and then landed a job, luckily, pretty much by luck, because the person I was volunteering for, he was on the hiring committee of uh, Greg Belenke, who was opening up this new lab at Washington State University in Spokane and um, ended up landing a job as the primary sleep technician at the lab that was just opening. And so started off as a sleep technologist there where I would hook up participants myself with the wires, also train research assistants to do the same thing and then score the sleep studies for the stages of sleep. Um, and so I did that for a few years four years, and then I transitioned into graduate school because I felt that I was kind of at a ceiling and I wanted to go much deeper into exploring the world of sleep. And so I got my master's and PhD at that lab. And then I really wanted to combine, combine my passion for sport. So I ended up doing a postdoc at the University of Calgary, focusing on um, sleep interventions in Canadian Olympic team athletes. So I was able to do a two-year postdoc there, and then I worked for Center for Sleep and Human Performance afterwards. And now I'm currently the senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center, where I'm looking at sleep interventions for better mental health, um, as well as working with athletes along the side as well. So if you're, um, if you have an athlete or you have someone with, um, poor mental health, you're observing their sleep throughout the night and seeing if there's anything that you guys can implement to help. Well, um, so my current role is primarily working with the general population and, um, them coming in with mental health problems. And then we're looking at incorporating sleep interventions to help mental health. Um, but then I'm also doing research with researchers, collaborators around the world, um, doing the athlete and sleep intervention research protocols as well. So I'm kind of, they're kind of two separate things, but my current role, I really wanted to not necessarily specifically work just with athletes, but I also wanted to apply what I learned to the general population. Cool. Um, I like hearing your career and what sort of work you've been doing because it sounds like you're just what we need uh, for this interview and interviewing, <laughs> well, looking at interventions for Olympic athletes is 
very, very elite. And uh, I'm excited to delve into what you've found there. I thought for a kind of foundation initial question, um, I thought we might just want to start with the, the different types of stages of sleep. And is it important for us to know the different stages? Um, just if we are a runner, uh, what we need to know about those stages? I would say a short answer to your question is no. Uh, A lot of people worry about the different percentages of the stages that they're getting. And, oh, no, my watch is telling me I'm not getting enough REM sleep. Well, number one, the watch, how accurate is it, is is kind of a major question. Um, They are getting better, I will say, so I don't want to completely write them off. But in order to really look at the different stages of sleep, you need to use electrodes and measure the electrical activity of the brain using EEG or electroencephalography. So, um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about those distributions. Um, I can talk briefly about the different stages if you want. Me yeah, to. that'd be great. Okay. So, There are two main divisions of sleep. So there's non-REM sleep, which is non-rapid eye movement sleep. And then there's REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep. So non-REM sleep um, is composed of three different stages. So you have stage one, which is the lightest stage of sleep. And we're we're only in stage one about 5% of the time throughout the night. And then we go into stage two sleep which is takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night. So this is a, a really prevalent stage occurring um, during the night. And um, this is where breathing and heart rate become regular. Our body temperature starts to drop. We see different brainwave activities going on. Um, and then we'll get into the stage three sleep, which is the deepest stage of sleep. And it takes up about 20% of our sleep time. So most of, most of this is occurring during the first half of the night. Um, and what we see in the brain waves is that the waves start to get very large and slow. And it's very difficult to wake someone up during this stage. And what, what's going on during this stage is we see tissues are being repaired, growth hormone is being released, and it's also highly involved in memory consolidation. So it's a place where new facts and skills are stored and strengthened. And then after stage three, we'll probably go back to stage two. We may have an awakening, and then we'll get into um, rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And so this is where we're actively dreaming, although we can dream in any stage of sleep. Um, This stage takes up about 25% of your sleep time across the night. And it takes about 90 minutes or so to get into this stage once you fall asleep. And um, the first half of the night, we're seeing shorter dreaming periods, shorter REM periods. Whereas when we get later on in the night, we start to see bigger chunks of of REM sleep occurring. Um, And then your body, your breathing and heart rate become irregular. Your muscles are paralyzed so that you don't act out your dream. And then this stage is also heavily involved in memory. And it's known to kind of integrate new information with past experiences to solve problems and gain insights. Is there any stage 
that is contributing to recovery or um, just like rebuilding muscle tissue or anything like that. Uh, if we are an athlete or we are a runner who is like just finished like a hard workout the day before, um, is there any one stage that sort of is predominant in that? Yeah, so that would be the stage three, so the deepest stage of sleep. Um, and with exercise in general, we see more stage three occurring in the general population. So that's why we will always recommend um, exercise as a way to boost sleep quality because as it turns out, we end up getting more of that deeper stages of sleep after exercise. Very cool. Is there, thanks for that. Is there any signs of someone who might be having like poor sleeping patterns or um, poor habits that might contribute to um, being tired the next day and they might not be directly correlating it to their sleep? Yeah. Um, I guess so we can talk about quality of sleep, which is important. Um, let me just mention, though, the quantity of sleep as well. So there's kind of three key main factors for optimal sleep. The first one is the quantity of sleep. So someone who's not getting seven, seven to nine hours of sleep per night is, is not really meeting that recommendation. So adults need between seven and nine hours. So if someone's really tired and they're not meeting that mark, um, a lot of times if they just get more sleep, they may feel a lot better. Um, but then there's other situations where people are getting plenty of sleep in bed, but they're not necessarily, they're tired during the day, they're really groggy in the morning, um, and they just don't feel like the quality of that sleep is important. So signs that you're getting good quality sleep is that you're falling asleep in less than 30 minutes, you're waking up no more than once per night, and then during that awakening, you're, you're able to get back to sleep within about 20 minutes, and also that you're sleeping about 85% of the time that you're in bed, so you don't want to be awake for long periods during the middle of the night. Um, that can be a sign of poor sleep quality. So I guess that's kind of a general rule for people to kind of realize, am I getting good quality sleep or not? But then I will also add that the third factor has to do with timing of sleep. So ideally, we want to sleep within our natural preference for being a night owl or an early bird. And about 15% of us are night owls or we want to go to bed, you know, at midnight or later, um, wake up, you know, after 8, 8 a.m. Whereas an early bird would be someone that would want to you know, go to bed before 10 p.m. and wake up before 6 a.m. So about 15% of us are night owls, 15% of us are early birds, and the rest of us, 70%, kind of are intermediate types where we kind of fall in between that. So ideally with the timing, we want to time our sleep um, in relationship to our chronotype, our preference to be a night owl or an early bird, and that becomes a problem with our society for our night owls who have to be to work on time, 
um, you know, have to be up for society when things are running normally. Um, so there are a few things that night owls can do to help in that situation. And one of those would be to block light at night. So really try and dim the lights, um, potentially wear blue light blocking glasses, and then get lots of light in the morning to help set their circadian rhythm to that time of day. So it's not just about quality, it's also about quantity of sleep as well as timing of sleep in order to have um, optimal sleep. Very cool. You mentioned that the sleep stages might not be as accurate when it comes to watches, um, just those measuring devices. Um, would you say that the quality and quantity and timing of sleep, those um, three points that you mentioned, are a little bit more accurate with devices? Can they um, look at the quality and the efficiency of your sleeping in a bit more detail? They're getting, they're definitely getting better. Um, so the devices that are using heart rate variability, that are using temperature, that are using light, so the more channels that they can measure, the more accurate they're going to be at distinguishing the sleep stages as well as an overall sleep quality score. Um, but the ones that are just using more movement-based accelerometry, um, aren't quite as accurate at being able to pinpoint when you're asleep and when you're awake and then the awakenings that are occurring during the night as well. Okay. I'm assuming they just use like an accelerometer. Like if you're moving, it might be more indicative that you're awake. Yes, exactly. And they struggle sometimes with, um, the sleep latency, so the time it takes you to fall asleep yeah. because you can be laying there and not moving but still be awake. So that's kind of where it struggles a little bit. I, um, I've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, I have an aura ring that I wear and I sometimes question like, how does it know when I fall asleep? Because I'm laying in there in bed and it might take me about 15 minutes to fall asleep, but I'm just perfectly still. And then I nod off. I'm like, how does it know? Like the minute mm -hmm. when I start to, to drift off, but um, I could imagine that one looks at heart rate variability and temperature as well. But for uh, just a watch, uh, you wouldn't have any clue. I um, wanted to jump into another question related to that. Um, some people uh, say that they they fall asleep really quickly, and they they kind of say they're kind of proud of it because they um, they say, "Oh, I'm actually a really good sleeper because I fall asleep really really quickly." My question is, is that like a good sign of um, like a, a good sleep habit or is it actually a bad sign that they're not getting enough sleep, which is why they're falling asleep really quickly? <laughs> that, is, that is a great question. And um, it depends on how quickly they are falling asleep. So if it's, if it's less than five minutes, that's probably a sign that there may be some sleep deprivation going on. Um, but if it's more, you know, 10 to 20 or even up to 30, then, um, it, it's still defined as being normal. Okay. I guess their partners can tell if they're snoring within five minutes and it might be a bad sign. <laughs> Cause I know like with my sleep score, there was, uh, one 
night in particular, I fell asleep really quickly. I'm like, oh, great, but it actually um, scored me poorly on latency because I did fall asleep way too quickly. I'm like, oh, that's uh, interesting. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I would say in general, I, I do like the aura ring with its ability to track temperature. So our body temperature drops when we fall asleep to track heart rate variability. I think it captures light as well. Um, so it is one of the more accurate devices out there. Um, and that is very interesting that they have that in there. If you fall asleep too quickly, it can be a problem. Yeah, I think it was about three minutes. my thinking too, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, and how about any like common sleeping disorders that runners should be aware of? Is there any characteristics for s certain disorders? Um, anything to add about that? Well, I actually did a study in London Marathon Runners. So we're working on publishing it right now, but we did a survey using the Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire, which is a tool for you to anyone working with athletes out there, or even if you're an athlete yourself. Um, this is a, a free tool that you can find online. Maybe we can put a link in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, that I helped develop and um, looking at screening athletes for sleep problems and so in this London Marathon study we were studying over a thousand um, London Marathon participants and we found that actually about 15% uh, of them had a clinically significant sleep problem which is actually a lot lower than what we found in the Canadian national team athletes that I was working with that was more around 25% so in general, in runners, we, we don't see as high of a prevalence for sleep problems as we would with maybe a football player or a hockey player who has, uh, you know, a bigger neck circumference. They may be more the higher volume, higher weight. Um, they may be more prone to sleep apnea in that situation. And generally with runners, you know, we, they have more of a lean body type. Although sleep apnea can happen in anyone, um, there's not a high, as high of a prevalence in runners as there would be in a different type of athlete. Okay. Um, sleep apnea is a, a key one because it can be a disorder that not a lot of people know that they have if they do have it. Um, are there, is there anything that you can say are there any signs someone might have if they do have such a disorder? Um, yeah, anything to add there? Definitely. So if, if your um, bed partner notices that you're snoring heavily and you're stopping breathing, that is kind of number, the number one sign that there's probably sleep apnea going on in that situation. I would say also if you're extremely sleepy during the day, um, if you're needing a lot of caffeine to get you through the day, um, if you're feeling tired, you know, a few hours after you've woken up, those can all be signs of a potential underlying sleep disorder um, and potentially sleep apnea. Uh, what effects should we be worried about if we're chronically lacking good quality sleep? Mm -hmm. So um, 
Definitely what we see is that there's a higher, for those that aren't getting enough sleep or maybe lacking in quality, we see, we see a higher risk for diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, even there's some reports on Alzheimer's disease that you're at higher risk in those situations. Um, but I would say that that's pretty extreme. This would be, you know, continually not getting enough sleep for years on end or having an underlying sleep disorder for years and years and years. And the reason I say that is that um, when we look at parents in general, so I have three kids, uh, my youngest is two, and what we see is that it takes about six years to get back to your pre-pregnancy levels um, when it comes to sleep. Yeah. Um, but we don't see a higher rate of parents dying earlier compared to non-parents. Um, you know, so I think when we look at the literature, a lot of sleep scientists really point out the fact that there's a huge problem um, and that you'll die sooner and you'll have cardiovascular disease if you're not getting enough sleep and you'll have obesity. I mean, sure, you're at a higher risk, but I don't think um, if we look at the parents and if we look at in people suffering from insomnia, we don't see a higher mortality rate or a quicker mortality rate in those groups. So I think there's a lot to be explored when it comes to the effects of um, sleep deprivation and how that impacts your body. I know in the relationship with poor sleep or poor quality of sleep and injury risk, I've actually looked at a couple of papers that have mainly looked at the adolescent population in regards to if they get less than, I think it was seven hours sleep or more than seven hours sleep, the likelihood of them getting injured um, within the next one or two weeks. Uh, That just might be me cherry picking a couple of articles, but uh, is there any like overarching um, conclusion when it comes to the relationship between poor sleep and injury risk? Yes, that's a good point. So there was a study, there were a couple study in adolescents in particular, and one of them was looking at those who got less than eight hours of sleep um, compared to those who got more. So for an adolescent, the recommendation is between eight and 10 hours of sleep. Um, so more than what an adult would need. And they found that those who were getting less than eight hours per night had a um, 1.7 times greater risk for being injured than those who slept more equal to or greater than eight hours of sleep. And there was a different study in adolescents who also looked at nutrition and they found that um, just looking at sleep, sleeping more than eight hours of sleep during weekdays reduced the odds of injury by 61%. But when they also looked at nutrition intake, um, that they were getting their recommended fruits, vegetables, and fish, the study was in Sweden, they found that uh, those who who 
reach the recommended nutrition intake reduce the odds of injury by 64%. So, um, and there was a recent study in military personnel and they found a similar, a similar result with regard to the amount of sleep that they were getting. Um, they found that they were more at risk for injury when they weren't getting enough sleep. Um, but there's other studies that find no relationship and so I think this is kind of a mixed bag when it comes to injury risk and the amount of sleep that you're getting. Those studies that found no relationship, were they in the adult population? I believe so, yes. Um, they, yeah, they weren't in the adolescent. That could, be, that could be a reason, although the one in the military that did find a relationship um, found did find a relationship with injury risk and sleep were, were adults. Okay. Interesting point and um, sort of solidifies the importance of nutrition as well. Should we be worried if we have, say, one poor night sleep? I know if I have not necessarily a running race, but sometimes with triathlons, I'll be quite nervous the night before and just really, really struggle with sleep. And should I be worried with injury risk or impacting performance uh, when I have the next day to perform? Typically, typically one night of lost sleep is, I mean, it's normal in athletes with regard to performance anxiety and um, doesn't necessarily impact the performance that much. Um, but I would say a strategy that we recommend for athletes is to bank sleep leading into that competition in order to mitigate some of the impacts of that poor night's sleep prior to the competition. So what that means is you want to extend sleep, you want to get more, you want to maybe supplement with a nap in that week or two before that important competition. Some studies have shown even just a week of, you know, an hour or so more sleep per night. Um, has shown good results when it comes to performance during that sleep deprivation period. Um, and so, for example, there was a study in basketball players. Now, this was more of a long-term six to eight-week sleep extension, but they found improvements in free-throw shooting, um, reaction time, sprint times were reduced, overall mood was improved when they extended their sleep an hour, an hour or so um, for that long period of time. But there's been other studies, one particular in rugby players, where it was just uh, a one to two week period of sleep extension, and they found improvements in reaction time and reductions in cortisol um, with getting more sleep. And there was another study in tennis players that showed similar results with that one to two week period. So I think um, banking sleep leading into that really important competition can be a good strategy to reduce some of that anxiety related to a poor night's sleep prior to the competition. I think that that's a really cool thing to implement because I've never thought of that. And I think if you know that you have banked sleep, that might actually be a strategy for you to calm yourself down and be like, okay, it almost gives you reassurance that it's okay to have poor quality sleep the night before and therefore you're less stressed and maybe get better sleep. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it, it plays a role on, on the calming, calming you down. Not a big deal. I mean, if you're in a triathlon, so I did Ironman uh, about 10 years ago. Oh, cool. And, Congrats. You know, <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and, you know, I had to wake up something like, you know, 4.30 in the morning. So, of course, I'm not going to be able to get to sleep on time in order to get that full amount. So absolutely having that um, confidence that I'm, I have good sleep leading into this, there's not going to be a problem. Yeah, really cool. Um, being conscious of time, I might move on to some social media questions that we have come in, uh, which is good because we've got four questions here and I don't think we've covered any of them yet. So Dana asks, asks, are there any tips for staying asleep? She is a light sleeper and when she wakes up in the middle of the night and has trouble getting back to sleep and she'd like to sleep deeper. Any tips for Dana? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple techniques that I, I really like. Um, number one is the four, seven, eight breathing technique. So this is where you uh, breathe in for four seconds, you hold your breath for seven and then you breathe out for eight and you repeat that four times, four to five times. Um, and it's just a way to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, kind of calm you down. And so I really, when I wake up during the middle of the night, I'll start by doing that technique first to just kind of calm me down. And then I follow that up with the cognitive shuffle. So you think of a word such as bedtime, and you imagine all the objects that you can that start with B, so ball, banana, bus, bag. When you can't imagine any more objects, you move on to E, so eagle, egg, ear, eye, um, and then you move on to D. And by the time you get to the end of the word, you'll be sound asleep. So that method works really well for myself and others. Um, and I will also add that if you're like, let's say you've tried those techniques and you're still not falling asleep and it's been at least probably, you know, around 20 minutes or so, the best strategy for you is to get up out of bed because you don't want to start associating your bed with being awake. So you want to get up out of bed, do a calming activity in low light, and then only return back to bed when you're sleepy. Any common um low physical activity um things that you suggest if someone were to get up um so stretching might be an idea so some different stretches that you could do um reading a paper book in low light can be a strategy um maybe taking a warm bath or shower um anything that would be <clears throat> not very stimulating you don't want to go to your phone and start being exposed to that bright light and social media feeds and stuff like that. You want to do more calming activities. Okay, cool. We'll move on. Uh, that was really cool. I really like the the practical tips. Um, so that's why I was sort of prompting a couple more things there. Uh, Janine asks, uh, is waking up and jumping out of bed a real thing? And there, is it a sign of good sleep or is it a myth? Um, so it's a bit of a myth. So there's a lot of individual variability in what's called sleep inertia. So when we wake up, um, 
sometimes it can take us up to 90 minutes to feel alert. And so for some people, it may be, you know, 10 minutes versus someone else, maybe an hour. And all of that, that entire range is perfectly normal. So it is, I would say it is a myth for you to feel, um, let's say, you feel like you're not alert when you wake up. Um, so I must be getting terrible sleep, but that's, that's actually a myth. Um, it could just take you a little bit longer depending on what stage of sleep you're waking up in. So if you're in more of a lighter stage of sleep, there's going to be less sleep inertia versus someone who's waking up in the deepest stage of sleep, which is a very low likelihood if we're talking about nighttime sleep but potentially a high likelihood if we're talking about a nap. Cool. Uh, Janine also asked another question, so we might uh, maybe answer this one a bit more briefly. Can overtraining impact your sleep? Definitely, yeah. So it can, um, it can impact your quality of sleep. It can impact the amount of sleep that you're getting. Um, so what we'll see is in athletes who have overtraining syndrome that their, their sleep is impacted in one way or another, and it could be the opposite as well, that they're maybe sleeping too much. Um, but definitely, yes, sleep can be impacted with overtraining. Okay. And Daniel asks the optimal sleep position is back or side um, and also thoughts on napping during the day if so how long so we might just start with the sleeping position okay so the best sleeping position i would say is on your side with a pillow in between your legs to support your back and neck um, so that's that position is supportive for your back but it's also a key position for um to help mitigate against sleep apnea so a lot of times you know for example a chiropractor might say the best position would be to sleep on your back but in my opinion um there's more risk for sleep apnea because of the gravity of your tissues being pushed down so in my opinion, um, we can still get good support on the side, but reduce the risk of sleep apnea that's occurring. Cool. And how about a pillow for your neck? Any advice you could give out? Just something that's comfortable. I mean, there's not any, it's all, it's kind of an individual preference. Um, so there's not really a certain pillow that I recommend. Um, it would just be, kind of testing out what's comfortable for you. Good one. And I know a lot of people have about seven different types of pillows on their bed. So I think just trying one and seeing which one is the most comfortable is a good way to go. How about um, napping as a strategy for um, accumulating more sleep? Yes, napping. I love napping. Me too. <laughs> um, yes. So napping is great and it's a, an area where athletes don't necessarily take advantage of. So in our study, we found that about only about, or it was 80% of Canadian national team athletes nap less than two times per week. And so um, this is really an area where people can make up for some of that lost sleep 
or for example, you know, one of the key sleep hygiene strategies is to keep a consistent sleep-wake schedule. But there's times where you might wake up, let's say at four in the morning, you can't get back to sleep, and then people will be tempted to sleep in later. Um, but really the best thing to do would be to, you know, get up at that regular time, but then supplement in the afternoon with a nap so that it's not impacting your circadian rhythms as much. And I would say that the timing of the nap, you want to keep that between in the afternoon between 1 and 4 p.m. We don't want that too late because then it could impact your ability to fall asleep. And then as far as the duration goes, um, less than 30 minutes, so about a 20-minute nap, is, is key so that you're not getting into those deeper stages of sleep where you have that sleep inertia and you're waking up feeling groggy. Um, however, if you do have a longer opportunity, you could try and aim for about a 90 minute so that you're getting all the stages of sleep um, and then try and wake up naturally out of that 90 minute nap. Maybe set an emergency alarm of two hours, um, but really try and wake up naturally so that you don't have a lot of that sleep inertia occurring. And then um, Keep the environment cool, dark, and quiet if you can. So you might need an eye mask, you might need headphones with white noise, or you might need earplugs. And then try and incorporate some of those um, techniques to help you fall asleep that I mentioned earlier with the 478 breathing and the cognitive shuffle. And I will add one more, which is writing a to-do list. So that has been shown to help people fall asleep quicker at night if they write a to-do list right before they go to bed. And so that could be another useful strategy in a nap. You have all of these thoughts on your mind, you know, write that to-do list and then um, hopefully it'll help you fall asleep quicker. Fantastic. Uh, one more question and it's from Emily and it's a bit of a backstory involved as well. Um, how much is too much sleep? Even before I was a distance runner, I was constantly tired. My husband says I sleep too much. I can sleep 12 hours and still need a nap. I am always tired. I can function on four hours a night. I wonder uh, how much varies from person to person or if I have an underlying issue. I have worked hard to get my nutrition on point and still chronically tired. Mm -hmm. So in this instance, um, if someone can sleep 12 hours and then still not feel rested and still need a nap, and this is occurring, you know, multiple times per week, I would say there's probably an underlying issue going on and you definitely want to get that checked out from a sleep professional. Um, the normal healthy range of sleep is between seven and nine hours per night. So anything above that, of course, there is variability. And, um, and the younger you are, so if you're an adolescent, you need more of that 8 to 10. But if we're talking about an adult who's continually getting, you know, 11 hours of sleep per night and still not waking up feeling refreshed, or sorry, cancel that because you don't have to wake up feeling refreshed, but feel tired during the day, sleepy, I would say definitely get that checked out because there might be an underlying sleep disorder. Okay. And so their first move would be to go to or find a sleep specialist. 
Yes, I mean, they, any, any athletes out there, you can um, first try the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, kind of see what that says, and then um, maybe go to your general family practitioner, and then they can help navigate you towards a sleep specialist depending on what country you're in. Um, you may have to go to the family doc first and then get referred. I'm very curious about this questionnaire. I'd love for you to send it across and um, so I can give it to my athletes if they have any questions. Um, while we're on that, I'll leave a link to that um, study that you mentioned before in the show notes. And while we're on the topic, are there any other social media platforms or handles someone can go to if they want to continue following you or learn more about you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at sleep for sport and I'm working on um, building a website, sleep well to win. So um, sleep well to win.com. So Ooh, I like that. For that as well. Awesome. Uh, is there any other key messages that we haven't got across on today's interview um, that we, that you want to get across to those runners who um, want to know more about sleep? Sure. So I guess two main things that I would recommend um, when I'm talking to athletes and coaches, one thing is the pre-sleep routine. So you can't just flip a switch and expect to fall asleep instantly. You have to prepare your mind and your body for sleep. And so for me, um, my kind of ideal time is I'll set a bedtime alarm about an hour and a half before my desired bedtime. So setting that bedtime alarm will help signify to you that you need to put away the electronic devices, you need to start dimming the light, you can potentially prepare for the next day, you know, packing your gym bag or setting out your clothes for the next day, and then just, you know, doing maybe a warm bath or shower, which has been shown to help, um, make it faster for you to fall asleep. And then do some of those to-do lists, uh, breathing exercises, reading a paper book. Um, and so people, yeah, people need to realize that this is going to benefit their, both their sleep quantity as well as their sleep quality by incorporating that pre-sleep routine. And then the second thing I think that we didn't really touch upon was caffeine. So um, I think I'm... I come across maybe sometimes as being anti-caffeine um, in general because I know of the impacts on sleep quality, but I try and live by um, drink caffeine strategically, not automatically. And so, for example, I just came back from Europe and um, I was wanting to prepare myself for when I arrived in Calgary. And so um, I had a little bit of caffeine in the evening, which I would never, ever do. But I knew that that would help me um, go to bed later as well as shift my circadian rhythm to a later time. So in that instance, I was using caffeine strategically. So I think for people out there to not be reliant on caffeine each and every day, but to realize um, to use it when you really need it and to maybe every few days not have caffeine or maybe have a black tea instead of a full double espresso um, to really not make you 
automatically going for that caffeine. And there has been um, research to show that the way you metabolize caffeine impacts how caffeine affects your performance. So one particular study by Guest, uh, Dr. Guest in 2018 found that caffeine actually impaired performance in those who were slow metabolizer on a cycling time trial. So I think people out there automatically think, oh, caffeine is good for me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help me improve my performance. But I think we need to kind of take a step back and really understand, is it benefiting, benefiting your performance? Um, and, and maybe trying to understand how you metabolize caffeine could be a way to know whether or not it's helping me or not. Super interesting. So you're pretty much using, like caffeine can be a powerful tool if you use it appropriately and know how you process it within your body. Absolutely, yes. Awesome. I think that's a good way to finish up. Uh, thanks for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. Uh, like the topic of sleep just applies to everyone. It's not just athletes. Um, it's not just the elites and everyone can benefit just from daily performance and physical performance and um, like, like improve cognitive function and memory and all that sort of aspect. So um, especially in this day and age when like people are working from home and people are overworked and all these devices and blue light and social media and all these sort of things that can start to impact your sleep. It's really good that someone like you's out there doing the research and bringing that awareness to the general public. So thank you very much for sharing all these really cool practical tips and thanks for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.